teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, good morning. And before, before we get started on your tables, there should be uh, little index cards. And, and I have a little, uh, little exercise I want you to engage in before we get started to talk about a great man of faith. And I've, I've made a slide here. Uh, if you would, at the top, just, just write your name, and these are not going to be turned into me. These are for your own use, but there's a reason I'm having you do it. So uh, write your name at the top, the address of your current home, the name of your closest family member, the name of your closest friend, your biggest hope for the future, and what you currently are most proud of. So I want to start on the positive note today. I mean, these are, these are all great things, positive things. And if you're, if you're like some people, you've got more than one close family, just put a couple of the names down then. If you've got more than one super close friend, put a couple. The point isn't to bog down on the selection process. It's just to identify a handful of people, a handful of things that really are, are positives in, in your life. So as y'all, as y'all continue to finish, what, what are some feelings when you think about, when you think about, the, the people, when you think about uh, what you're hoping for in the future, friendship, where you live, what, what are some of the feelings that come from that? Yeah, no, it, a little fullness. So, what type of feelings did that bring? Does that, is that, does that bring good feelings? Yes. And these are like the most positive things. We, were, we are wired for relationships, right? That the most true thing about us is that we were made for relationship. That, that could be relationship with God relationship with each other, that my greatest joys have come in the relational realm. What I'd like you to do on the card, is everybody finish your card now? What I'd like you to do is I'd, I'd like you just to tear it up, if you would. Just tear it up, and there's a trash can right here in the middle, and just throw it away. All right? So... As many as you want, a lot of people are more identity freak, and they're going to take it to their office and cross-cut a thing and send it out. We've been in a series about great men of faith, and I was going to do it on Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Soviet dissident, because I think his life, I heard a speech of his years ago at Harvard's commencement, it's about an hour long, and it is one of the clearest, most compelling rebukes of liberal, progressive education, politics, and economics ever from a Soviet dissident that had been exiled from Russia that had won the Nobel Prize in 1970 but couldn't even pick it up because he couldn't leave Russia until 1974 when they sort of booted him out and he picked it up. And, and then I started thinking about where my life has been over the last several years and where even maybe some of our lives have been, and so I have a different great man of faith, and, and any, any guesses on the name of this great man of faith? What? Uh, faced, faced great adversity. Ah, uh, okay, that's, that's really nice. So, <laughs> no, 
So let me, let me tell you a little bit about, about this guy. The experience of what you just had in your hand, the names of people you love, job you might have, a home you live in, all of those things that bring fullness to our life, that man had him, that card got ripped out of his hands and torn up before his very eyes and thrown out. All because he was called a leper. He was diagnosed with leprosy. So if, if we sit here and say, you know, what, what is, you know, what is this, this guy's name? <clears throat> well, let's read this passage. If you all turn to Luke 5, and we're going to start in verse 12, where really his involvement is just sort of 12, 13. That's sort of it. Christ's involvement goes on, and our involvement because of that will, will go on. It says, verse 12, while he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13, reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. We don't have time, but if you go into Deuteronomy and you go into Leviticus, if you have leprosy, number one is it's, it's, not, it's not like the flu that can kill you. But what, what leprosy did is you would lose your hair, you would begin to lose your limbs. It would start as a little white spot of skin, and it would slowly progress. And as soon as it was identified, guess what you had to do? Leave. You, you left your house, you left your wife, you left your kids, you left your job. Your hobbies and interests, I don't know what they were back then. I doubt they had like a, you know, go-karting and stuff like that, but they might have did camel racing, who knows, but they leave everything, and they're outside of the city, and when you walk by going from city to city, there are people that don't have their hair cut until it falls out, covered with like a gauze across their face and their body, and they have no name, and they cry out three times, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so if he was sitting here with us around a table today, his name tag would be unclean. We might say he's marginalized. We might say that he's not empowered. We might say that he's on the fringe of society. And we could drive by him on the feeder road and we could judge him pretty quickly. Man, Lord God, I thank you I'm not like that guy. That guy must have really sinned and really done something bad to be like that. You know, Lord, that's not me, and that's not how I live. And so, Father, I thank you that I'm not like him. And yet there are lessons that we get to learn from a leper that the name will never know. The lessons, hopefully, my prayer will be the lessons we can take from us today, in our culture today, in our economy today, with marital struggles today, and parenting questions today, and joys today, and good things today, that I think a great man of faith is a man that I don't even know his name. And I think if we saw life the way God sees life, let's be real honest, 
When I think of great men of faith today, I think of Tim Keller and Francis Chan and Matt Chandler and Greg Mott and Billy Graham. Like, I'll, I'll rattle off the names because I've read their books, right? I've heard their sermons. I believe in my heart that they love Jesus more than I do, okay? I think if we saw it through the lens of Christ and through his eyes, I may be surprised at who the great men of faith are that he says are great. It's guys that I don't even know their name, and if you gave me their name and put their photos up on a wall, I wouldn't pick them out. I wouldn't know them. You wouldn't know them. They could be in the office in the same floor you are, and you may not know that they're a great man of faith. And that encourages me because it also means that we could be great men of faith. That it's not about heading up a ministry. And it's not about having a great skill of speaking or teaching or singing. That it's something different. And I think what this leper showed me and what I hope he shows you is that we don't have to live life under the stars of, of personalities, the cult of personality. We don't. I know Greg's greatest desire at our church is not that it would be a cult of Greg Mott. I know that. It's not. And I'll tell you this, our heart as humans in our culture today, we want it to be that often. We celebrate, oh, I'm a part of this church, here's my pastor, and, you know, we're, it's there. It's in our culture. We cannot escape that. I think Greg's greatest prayer for you and for me is that we would fall madly, deeply, passionately in love with Jesus, that what this leper did in a couple of sentences, we would do it every day. And so I want to look again at what, and, and yeah, just take that in for a moment. So who wrote, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? And I know we could debate this, but I'm just saying, <laughs> Luke, and what was his job? Doctor. And he took a medical term to describe him. Okay, Matthew didn't take a medical term to describe him. He, Luke took an actual medical term to describe him. And, and not only did he describe what he had, he described the extent of what he had. And what does it say here in Luke 5.12? It says, while he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease. And that's an understatement. But that was the actual... That, that Greek word would have been the word that we would understand to be some form of leprosy. On his cheek, on his hand, all over him. If your doctor says something's all over you, it's because they have experience seeing these things and understanding these things, and they're declaring these things. And if leprosy is all over you, it's not just beginning, it's coming to its painful conclusion. And these give us a sense of what a painful conclusion to leprosy would be. And if I'm a dad, and I am, and if I had a kid and I've got four, the last thing in the world I would wish on any of my children is that they would suffer anything close to this. Amen? That if I'm not married and I don't have a kid, the last thing I would want my best friend to go through, the last thing would be living through something like this. Tragic car accident, 
I've lost a friend that way. Did they suffer? They didn't suffer that much. Did I bawl my eyes out? Yes, I did. Did I hate it? Yes. But I didn't see them without a name, sitting outside yelling unclean, losing limbs and fingers and eyes and hair and everything that they held near and dear. So a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. He sees Jesus, he falls face down, and he begs him. We don't know in Mark what had just preceded this, but in Matthew, as Matthew tells this very same story, it's in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are known as the what? Sermon on the Mount. Now he's... He's not supposed to be following Jesus around. He's not supposed to be in the city. But the Sermon on the Mount wasn't in a city. It's out in the country. And I just, in my mind, I believe he either witnessed that or he saw that and he lurked on the periphery, out of sight, but not out of earshot. And he heard Jesus speak in ways that he had never heard a teacher speak. He heard Jesus say things he had never heard Jesus say. And something about Jesus registered differently for him. He didn't come looking for the disciples. He didn't come looking for a doctor. He came looking for Jesus. And when he goes to Jesus, he falls face down, proskuneo. It means to kiss the feet of. He's supposed to stay away from people. He goes and violates the law, right? He violates that law. He is desperate. I've got a bad back, and I, I am a sucker for late-night infomercial stuff where if, if they promise an easy fix for a back, I've probably got it in my closet, and I'll tell you they don't really work that well. But I've spent enough money on them to tell you that inversion and all that, those things can help, but they don't cure. And as he falls down, he begs Jesus, and what does he beg him for? Well, no, he doesn't. I would ask for healing. You know, that would be sort of my thought. Heal me, Jesus, heal me. But he doesn't. He goes for the, he, he goes for the grand slam. Not just physically heal me, but cleanse me. I want to go back to my home. If I'm unclean, I can't. Cleanse me. I want to go to the synagogue with people and worship Yahweh. But if, I, but if I'm not clean, I can't. I want to go back to my work. I want to go back to my house. The people I touch, I don't want them to be cursed. I want them to be blessed. Cleanse me. Is this theology right? You better believe this theology is right. He knows Jesus has all authority and all power on heaven and earth. Whatever is in the way, whatever the barrier is, it can be brought to Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of all. And so his question was simply, if you're willing, you could do it. The boys never met anyone before that could do that. Never. So this guy lays it out for Christ. The rest of the story is really beautiful. The rest of the story, Christ speaks very clearly, and he heals him. But ironically, he touched him before he spoke and declared him clean. In the Old Testament, leprosy was a sign of sin, that it would corrode away the very essence of who we are as people. 
it would leave us ostracized from the community of faith, and eventually it would kill us and destroy us. Jesus, by touching him, took leprosy upon himself, and then by declaring him clean and then healing him, he both took it, bore the weight of it, and overcame it. It's a beautiful picture of salvation and redemption, that Jesus takes my sin, he handles the weight of it, the burden of it, and then he overcomes it, and he walks out, right? And then he tells this guy to do what? Hey, 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 hey. Nada. Don't tell anybody. Quiet. Quiet. Nothing. Now, go to the priest. Show him yourself. Tell him you're cleansed and have him make the sacrifice. Naaman was healed miraculously in the Old Testament of leprosy, and Miriam was. Now, that wasn't like 20 years ago for them. We're talking 1,000-plus years ago for the priests. If you've ever gone to like a favorite restaurant and had an off-menu item that you like, you can say, hey, I want this, and they, they bring it out for me at, at Red Robin. It's the pot roast burger. I like the pot roast. They used to have it. They took it off. You can still, some of them, you can still order it and get it. But if you get a new waiter or a new waitress, they just stare at you like a deer in a headlight. Imagine if you're a priest, you've never heard of anybody being cleansed of leprosy. So even though in Deuteronomy 16, there is an ornate ritual where two birds are taken, one bird is killed, its blood is sprinkled on the other bird and on the leper, and then the living bird is thrown up and it flies away, symbolic of death, burial, and resurrection. Hello, the gospel is in the Old Testament too. That guy's like flipping through the manual. Uh, okay, whoa, 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 time out, time out. What, okay, and he's going down the index. Uh, leprosy, leprosy, leprosy. Oh, th there. And then he's like, well, my grandfather never talked about this, and my, my dad certainly didn't tell me about this, and none of my friends at, at rabbinical school or priesthood have, have ever talked about this, and, you know, I don't know what to do. And, and so they're reading step by step by step what to do. But they're also keenly aware that that was one of the signs of the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to come. And when he came, he would heal the blind, the lame, the lepers, and he'd set captives free. And he would adopt the fatherless. It's this beautiful thing. So this is going on. So, so I'm telling you this story so that we can get to some lessons real quickly. And I want to give them to you in sort of bullet form. And so number one is hold nothing back from God. Hold nothing back from God. I mean, he was desperate. Imagine you've lost everything. Your card is in the trash. What would you do to get it back? Or pick it this way. If there was a guy that said, hey, tonight, 935, I'm coming into your house, and I'm going to kill your wife, and I'm going to kill your kids, what would you do? La, 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 you know, I'm going to play a video game, I'm going to watch some TV, I'm going to, no, it's on. I'm calling my friends, I'm calling the police, I'm loading up the guns, I'm pointing them at the windows and the doors. We are, we are going to no lengths. Why would I let someone come into my very house to steal, to kill, to destroy? Why wouldn't I be vigilant and desperate then John 10.10 10 says, the thief came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Are we 
holding things back from God or not? Are we desperate and deliberate in the pursuit of understanding him, knowing him, loving him, and making him known to others? And here's a question for me and a question for you. Are we desperate to walk in the wholeness and freedom Christ fashioned us for? Are we? And I don't know. My prayer is that we are. Y'all recognize that expression, gazelle-like intensity? Dave Ramsey fans, anybody? Hey, financially, you get a budget, you're in debt, you better be gazelle-like intensity. Otherwise, you're dead meat economically in our country today. You are. But let me say this, man. I, the money is going to come and the money is going to go. But the word of the Lord is forever. The one who can bless us or curse us eternally is alive and well, and he has sent Jesus. And we must be gazelle-like intensity to say, God, I'm going to walk in freedom with you. I will pursue knowing you and loving you. Number two, hope in Christ alone. I love it that he didn't fall down at the disciples' feet. He didn't go to Luke. He didn't go to a physician. He didn't go to the synagogue or a rabbi. He went to Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone. There had never been a person that walked on the planet that could cleanse a leper. But he knew, man, he was there. Somehow he knew Sermon on the Mount. He heard something, saw something. He knew, hey, if I'm going to risk something, if I'm going to risk rejection from people because I'm breaking the law, I'm going to risk it for the one who could possibly do this. And, and I love this. This is the definition Hebrews gives us of faith. It says this, now faith is the reality of what is what? hoped for. He had never seen it done before. He hoped he could be. It's the reality of what it's hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And four verses later, the author of Hebrews says this, and without that, you can never please God. And so when I think of this great man of faith, the faith was that he hoped in Jesus against all odds, and he threw it all in there with Jesus. So when he did that, he really, in a very real sense, risked for Christ. He risked social rejection, ceremonial law-breaking. He risked everything. He could have been stoned for this because he's threatening everyone else with uncleanliness. And by the way, Jesus could have said, who is this man? He's a leper. Take him away. Stone him. But he didn't. He risked that Jesus would have grace. He risked that Jesus would have mercy. And let me just throw this out. The great, I think one of the greatest lies that Satan has used in my life and maybe in yours to keep us in hopelessness is that how things are today is how they will always be. That if I'm an addict, well, this is just how I am, and I'm just an addict for the rest of my life. If my marriage is bad today, well, it's always going to be bad. I might as well get out of it now because it's just going to suck the rest of my life. God can't do anything to fix it, to change it, to mold it, to make it, to bring health and wholeness to it. And I want to encourage you 
that our very salvation. Let me just read this. And you, and this is us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom what we all once lived. So this is how we were. And all of a sudden, we're not that way. Verse 4 shows us, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Why? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ. How? Well, we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask you this. If how it is today is how it's always going to be, then how does that verse and that passage ever enter the Bible? We're dead in our sins. We're slaves to our passion and our lusts. These people weren't because but God can do something about it, right? And I just want to encourage you. I don't know what you're, but God, you're needing him to do something in some area of your life. But I will just say this, that our faith is going to get measured by something, and it is by what we're willing to risk for the gospel. That when we don't bring something to him, we're not risking anything for him. When we don't share something with another, we're not risking something for him. And my faith, I believe it. If he says, Eric, show me your faith by your words? No. Show me your faith by your life. But what I do by the truth I speak and the truth I live by. And I'm not perfect. My hope isn't me. My hope isn't Eric. The leper had no hope in himself. That's why he fell at the feet of the only one who did have anything that he could do to Jesus. But not only did he take a risk, he boldly and humbly submitted to Christ. He boldly and humbly submitted to Christ. And I love this, that he didn't demand of Christ. He didn't assume of Christ. And in the garden, Christ modeled it with the Father. Father, let this cup pass before me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I submit myself, Lord, unto you, my Father. I submit it to you. He models it to us. And that word submission, what does that really mean? I mean, literally, it means this. I have a mission, and sub means under, right? I take my mission, and I bring it underneath the mission of someone else so that their mission is now my mission. So I could be submitted to America, and if I'm in the Army, I'm submitted to my commanding officer, I don't have to obey him, but I choose to submit myself to it. Now, there's a threat if I don't, right? But as believers, we have voluntarily said, you're Lord, I submit myself to you. I place myself under your authority and under your mission in whatever area of life it is. So if you have a will about my marriage, I want that to be in my marriage. If you have a will about my kids and parenting, I want that. Economically, I'd like that too. 
friendships? Sure, Jesus. My recreational activities and behaviors? Yes, I want it all underneath that umbrella for you. I love this verse from the psalmist, Psalm 40, which is one of my favorite psalms. If you like you too, it's they close, or they used to close every concert with this. And, you know, 99% of the people singing it probably had never read it in the Bible, but maybe they did because they sang it. But it says this, I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. I delight to do your will, O God. If we're going to be a yes man for anyone, let it be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let it be, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes. I delight to do your will, O Lord, for your instruction dwells within me. And I love it. And then he made an honest appeal to Christ. An honest appeal to Christ. And I'll just say this, I have spent most of my life feeling like, and if y'all are in the know, there's always someone that's got something worse than you. Physically something worse, relationally something worse, financially something worse. And so my prayer life, often I'll pull away from bringing something before God because I feel guilty about bringing it to God when I know that there is sex trafficking in Houston and there are people at MD Anderson right now that are not going to walk out of the hospital today. They're not. And some of them are kids. And it, that rattles us to the bone, right? And yet is God more glorified when his children withhold their sharing their desires to him? And I'm going to argue no, that God is not more glorified by our independence from him. His glory emanates from the intersection of our great need and his great abundance. That when I lay it out, Lord God, I can't do a thing here. I'm desperate here. This is all I'm asking. I'm not demanding and I'm not assuming. I am laying down before you. And I submit myself to whatever you want to do. But I'm asking for this. I've asked for my back to be healed for over 10 years now. And it hasn't been. Some of you have asked for healing as well in your own body. And maybe you haven't been. Does that mean that God hates us? Does that mean that, that our faith isn't strong enough? Well, the prosperity gospel would say that our faith is not enough. That, that if I believed enough, I'd be healed. If I believed enough, I'd have all the money in the world. And I just want to say that this guy, this great man of faith, turns that upside down. His faith was not the bold faith that said, Jesus, you heal me and you heal me now because I deserve it, because my best life is right here and right now. No, he humbly comes before God. He says, if you're willing, you can do it. Please heal me. And so we see from him that the cosmic vending machine known as Jesus Christ isn't really real, doesn't really exist, that we are not to say, okay, I'm going to put my prayer in here and my tithe, and then I get a good marriage. I get good kids. I have a, a, a flush retirement account, and I know we know that, but we don't live that way often. We have those two extremes of we either don't ask God or we demand of God, and I want to call us to boldly and humbly present our needs to Him and ultimately receive His will for our lives, to receive it. And I love what Paul calls God's will. 
in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we would prove the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That my back, whether I agree or not right now, it is within the will of God right now. It is. The status of my back. And that right now it is good, acceptable, and perfect. It is not what I want. And I'm asking him to change that. But I also can tell you a thousand other people that have 50 million things worse than that. And yet he still wants me to bring it before him humbly and boldly coming before him. And I think one thing else that I learned, and then I'll let us, let us slide here, is that when grace and brokenness collide, grace wins. That when grace and brokenness collide, grace wins. It doesn't win always to say, oh, that means your L2 and your L4 are completely healed, or, oh, you know, your wife's breast cancer really isn't breast cancer, or the miscarriage didn't really happen, or the layoff isn't going to happen. What it means is that even in that, his grace is transforming us because his greater desire is that he would reveal his likeness in us and through us. And those aren't easy, easy words. The last thing is he proclaimed Christ to others. Even though Jesus said, don't tell them anything, don't tell anybody anything, I love it. Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone a thing, but if you read Matthew... Homeboy gets going, and he becomes the PR agent for Jesus, so Jesus can't walk around Judea without people mobbing him. So here's the great irony. The leper who was commanded to be silent, except to the priests, couldn't keep quiet about the blessings of God, yet we, i.e. Eric Reed, who has been cleansed, redeemed, and restored are commanded to tell others, and we usually choose silence. I mean, isn't this weird? I mean, it's got to boggle Jesus' mind as much as it boggles my mind when I stare in the mirror and say, how bold have I been with the gospel? How bold have I been there? And I just want to encourage all of us, not legalistically. If we've been touched by God, if when our brokenness and His grace collide and His grace won... And it has the empty tomb from two weeks ago, right? It's real. We should be the hardest people to muzzle and silence and restrain. They should have to lock us up, burn us at the stake, throw us in prison, take our property. Oh, wait, that's what they did to the early church. All right. <laughs> I forgot about it. Yeah, you know, that's... But what do they do in America? They don't have to do a thing. They can give us a constitutionally protected right of religion here and freedom of religion, and 95% of us are not going to share the gospel at all this year to anyone, anywhere, anyhow. We won't. So this isn't beat up on us, but this is to say, man, here's a great man of faith. He held nothing back from Jesus. He came boldly but humbly. He made his appeal to Christ in a submitted position. He received God's will. And God gets glory from that, and then he begins to proclaim that everywhere. What a wonderful picture of the life that I would like to live, a life of faith.
that believes and hopes in what only God could do. So I want to pray over y'all right now, and then y'all can discuss some of these questions around the table. Lord God, we come before you, we love you, we know that you and you alone are wise, that you and you alone are able to overcome, to restore, to redeem whatever is broken in our life, whatever habits are there that need to be overcome, God, you can give that victory, you and you alone. So Lord, we just come, we ask you that our faith would be like the leper's faith, that we would risk for you, we would be bold, we would present it, we would just lay down and submit completely to you, Father. We love you, I thank you for these men. I know for you there is joy, Lord, you have joy when men gather around your word, when men come to say, change us, when men say, mobilize us, when men say, have your way inside of my home, God, you just, you just radiate. So, Father, be, be blessed as you are blessing us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.